This is the word of the Lord, Romans 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what he has done. To those who, are by, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immorality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when the When Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, and an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who are poor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Thanks, Carl. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you speak to us and we pray that as you speak that we would listen, uh, as we've heard your word read, that you would give us ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, hearts that believe. Uh, your words, uh, and that put them into practice. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. My uh, favourite TV shows uh, are all, I think, British murder mysteries. Uh, I'm a sucker for a British murder mystery, so George Gently, I love George Gently, I love Foyle's War, it's not on anymore, but... uh, I still watch old episodes. Uh, Poirot, Vera. I've got into Vera lately. I don't know if you've been watching that. Uh, But every now and again in those murder mysteries, there's a case where someone is accidentally killed. And the person who who commits the crime, or the person who's responsible, tries to cover it up. And the whole episode, you know, is about this person and what they've done and trying to cover it up. Instead of going to the police... They try and cover up what they've done. Uh, you might think of those other movies where that's the whole plot and you're sitting there the whole time thinking, honestly, just go and tell someone. It'll be so much better if you do it. Don't try and hide it. And they do and it's just agony for two hours. <laughs> it's, just, it's not just me, right? Uh, and I think in a, in a way, even though we can sit there and objectively sort of look at that and think, if I was there, I wouldn't do it. I think in many ways, actually, those films are a picture of life, uh, of our natural disposition. That is, we mess things up, we hurt people, uh, and instead of admitting our mistakes and facing up to the consequences of what we've done, we kind of push things uh, underground, we hide it. And the worst thing is, I think, that not just that we do that to other people, but that we do that to God. We sin against God. We kind of raise our fist against God. We go against God's plan and purpose for the world. And instead of kind of actually owning up to that with God, we push that under the carpet uh, and it ends badly. And that really, I think, is what Romans chapter 2 is all about. Uh, Last week, uh, if you weren't here, we looked at Uh, the second half of chapter 1, and we saw that God's wrath is being revealed against humanity because as people we reject God and we reject God's plan and purpose for the world. And so God has a right to be angry with us. But Paul now says at the beginning of chapter 2, he says that that's not just a problem for people out there, but that that's a problem for all humanity, that we've all rejected God, that we all have rebelled against God, that we've all sinned against God, and that we all stand under God's condemnation. None of us are better than anyone else. We've all 
sinned against God in a host of different ways. But he says at the beginning of chapter 2, we try and squirm out of that. And one of the key ways that we try and avoid that, we try and cover that up, Paul says, is we do that by pointing the finger at other people. So we try and excuse our own actions by highlighting the sins of the people around us. So verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? The Bible says that none of us have an excuse. We all stand condemned by God. And although sort of pointing the finger at other people might make us feel better about ourselves, uh, you know, if we can kind of push other people down, it makes it looks like we're doing better than they are. Although it might make us feel better, it doesn't actually do anything to address God's anger and wrath against us. It just actually condemns us further. Because as we sort of point the finger at other people, we're really actually pointing the finger back at ourselves. So imagine a politician... Uh, spends their career campaigning against corruption and they rail in the media against the evil of corruption uh, and they work hard to establish these anti-corruption bodies and they increase the penalties through the parliament, uh, they increase the penalties for corruption. If then that politician is discovered to be corrupt, what happens? Well, all the condemnation that he's railed against for others comes down on himself. And he has to stand ultimately before those anti-corruption bodies and he has to face those penalties that he's passed through the parliament. In the same way, Paul says that when we judge the sins of others, we just condemn ourselves. It's not that identifying uh, sin, the, the sin of others is always wrong, uh, it's not as though saying to someone, that's, that's stealing, you know, when they're actually stealing something. It's not as though that's kind of always wrong. Uh, it's not as though that's always an act of pride. Paul's just spent the last chapter trying to show people that there's sin in their lives, right? That they've rejected God. The problem is not highlighting sin at all, but the problem is using the condemnation of other people as a kind of a smokescreen to cover our own sins, so we point the finger uh, at the sexual immorality of our culture and all the while we nurse a secret porn habit of our own. Or we point the finger at the untrustworthiness of our politicians and yet we constantly promise that we'll do things, constantly promise that we'll turn up to things and we don't. We don't keep our word. Or we point the finger at the selfishness and materialism of our society, but then hoard all our money for ourselves and never share it with those who are in need. Or we point the finger at the Hitlers and the Pol Pots of the world, but then the racism which fueled their regimes lives in our hearts. We love to see the people on television being convicted of their crimes because it makes us feel so much better about ourselves. 
But the Bible says that we're all without excuse. And pointing the finger at other people doesn't actually help. It just condemns us further. It actually makes us more guilty. Because all of our lives are marred by sin. So if that's the situation then, if we're all guilty and if kind of, you know, highlighting other people's sins doesn't help, then what do we do? How do we respond to God? Well, Paul says here, and the Bible says in in general, that our only hope is not to cover sins, but to uh, seek the mercy of God, to be open with God and to seek his mercy. So look at what uh, Paul says next in verse 4. So in contrast to covering up sins, he says, or, or he says, in the practice of that. It says, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So actually pointing the finger at other people is a way of showing contempt for God's kindness. Because God's God is kind and patient and loving, not so that we can keep throwing ourselves into sin, not so that we can keep hiding it away and, uh, and, and, and pointing out the sins of others. No, God is patient and kind so that we can find mercy. God stands there with his arms open wide to us, but if we never actually turn around and embrace God, then his mercy and kindness is all in vain. It's lost to us. Repentance means to turn around. It means to change direction. I was going that way and I turned that way. I was pursuing sin. I turn around and pursue God. But at the heart of that change of direction, it's the realisation that we were going the wrong way. If you're going to turn from going that way, from pursuing sin to pursuing God, you need to at some level realise that you're doing the wrong thing. At the heart of repentance is acknowledging that there's something wrong with us for which we need God's help, for which we need God's mercy. At the heart of repentance is not pointing the finger at other people, but actually pointing the finger at ourselves and saying, actually, there's something wrong with me. And if we never acknowledge our sins to God in the course of our ordinary life, there's there's actually something wrong. It's not that we live in this kind of yo-yo state, up and down, where one moment we're saved and then we sin and then we're, and we're condemned to hell until we confess our sins again and, and get good with God. No, but from the moment, from the very first moment that we run into God's open arms, we're embraced by Him, we're loved by Him, we, we belong to Him. But then within that context, within the arms of God, acknowledging our sins to Him is a is an exercise of trust, isn't it? We believe that we can be open with God about the, the, the sin in our life because God loves us. God holds us by the hand. God holds us in his arms. And we know that the best thing that we can do is to be open and honest with God. But if we don't confess our sins, if we're, if we're constantly covering up our sins and, and hiding them and ignoring them, then that shows that we don't really trust God, doesn't it? that we don't really trust his love, that we don't really trust that Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for all our sins. It's a great test, I think, of whether we believe the gospel, whether we're open and honest with God, not just once 
you know, at the beginning of the Christian life, but whether we're open and honest with God for the rest of our lives. Because that shows that actually the gospel has worked deeply into everyday life. It wasn't just something that we did 20 years ago, but actually it's something that lives on uh, every day. Martin Luther, his first, Martin Luther's first uh, thesis, you know, of his 95 thesis that he nailed onto the door of Wittenberg Castle was that when, that when the Lord said, uh, repent, do repentance, he meant that our whole life should be a life of repentance. That was his first that was his first thesis because it was so, he saw it as so foundational to the Christian life. So Paul says that we all stand condemned before God. And our only hope then is to turn to God and to seek his mercy in repentance. And the rest of the chapter then is actually a continuing reflection on the nature of true repentance. So at its heart, true repentance involves, as I said, turning from sin and seeking God's mercy. But Paul goes on to expand on that in, in, in three ways. Next he says that true repentance involves uh, seeking God and seeking God's ways. We turn from evil to seek God. He encapsulates that idea in verses 6 to 11. He says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Okay, what does that mean? To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. Paul's looking ahead to the day of judgment where all of us will stand before God and give an account for our lives. And he asks the question, if you like, well, where will we stand? What will that look like? Who will be vindicated? Who will be condemned? And he says that the world will be divided up into two kinds of people. There will be those who seek good, seek eternal life, seek mercy from God, and there will be those who have persisted in evil. So it might sound at first that what Paul is saying is that God will weigh up the, all the good stuff that we've done and come in, all the bad stuff and that those who have, who have really uh, done great things with their life, they'll be acquitted and those who, uh, who have you know, kind of done more evil will be condemned. But that's not what he's saying. He's continuing to explain the nature of repentance. He's saying that repentance changes the shape and the character of our lives. So repentance itself doesn't make up us perfect, but it changes the things that we seek after, that we, that we are running after. The statement that God will repay each person according to what they've done is actually a common Old Testament idea that Paul is picking up on. It's an idea that appears in lots of places, uh, but one example of a place where it appears is in Psalm 62, where King David uses those exact words at the end of that psalm. But listen to how the psalm begins. So, so David begins this psalm with these words, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Or verse 8, Trust in Him at all times. You people, pour out your hearts to Him, for God is our refuge. And then at the end of the psalm he says, One thing God has spoken, two things I have learned... Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. You reward everyone 
according to what they have done. So in the context of the psalm, actually, what David, when David says the Lord will give to everyone according to what they've done, what he's talking about is people who have either trusted in God, whose, whose soul has found rest in God, or people who've, turned, who've rejected God, who've, who've not sought the mercy and the love and the kindness of God. Those who trust God and, and his salvation and mercy versus those who arrogantly go their own ways. The kinds of deeds or work that God is looking for in the context of Romans 2 is trust in him and in his salvation. And the person who trusts in God and in his salvation is then inevitably a person who turns away from evil and seeks good and immortality and life from God's hand. Okay, so, so you're going this way, you're pursuing sin, and you suddenly realise that that's not right. That actually we're condemned by God. And you realise that you need to turn, turn away from sin and turn to God. And so you do that. And the whole shape of your life changes direction. You go from pursuing sin, persisting in evil, to seeking God, to seeking good, to seeking glory and immortality and life. Paul's not saying that these people are perfect in what they do, but he's saying that the direction and the shape of their life has changed. They've changed from going after evil to going after God. The person who loves sin does not love God. The person who pursues sin is not pursuing God. The person who's stagnant in sin, kind of lying in it, is not resting in Jesus. So here are some tests that, you can, uh, that can help you to know whether you've turned to God uh, in repentance. Do you love God? Do you seek to love God and seek to delight in Jesus? And do you seek Him more and more as your greatest joy and your greatest treasure? There used to be joy there, now the joy is here is in pursuing God. Is your shape, life shaped by that pursuit, by the pursuit of Jesus? Is the, is the most important question that you ask uh, in your life, how can I serve Jesus in this? It's not always the first question that you ask, maybe, but at the end of the day, that's the, the question that you get to. How can I serve Jesus? Do you seek good? Uh, and not good in kind of an abstract sense, but seek good and do you seek what pleases God? Not are you perfect, but is that what you're pursuing? Are you gr- seeking to grow in the knowledge of Jesus and to grow in following Him? Are you seeking to grow in being obedient to Him and in doing the things that please Him? Are you seeking to put off the things that God hates and to seek, uh, are you seeking putting on the things that God loves? Are you seeking life from God's hand? Are you striving after it, calling out to God for it, reaching up day and night in confident, expectant hope uh, of the mercy of God? Or are you seeking life in sin? in your own kind of world, your own preoccupations. The question, again, is not are you perfect in going this way, 
But are you going this way? Do you see? Are you going towards God? Are you pursuing Jesus? Repentance involves turning away from sin and turning to God for mercy. It involves turning away from sin and seeking after God. So that's the positive aspect of repentance, seeking God. Uh, the negative aspect is that sin involves uh, that repentance involves turning away from sin and leaving that behind. So that's already clear in verses eight and nine, where Paul talks about those who respond to the mercy of God. Uh, sorry, who don't respond to the mercy of God by continuing to speak evil. And a little bit later on, though, Paul addresses the same issue in a bit more detail. So he says in verse seventeen, he's talking to to, to the Jewish people. He says, "Now if you." And now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say uh, that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do dishonor God by breaking the law. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now those verses are filled with all kinds of references and quotes to the Old Testament. But let me give you just one, the most obvious example of that, which is helpful for understanding what Paul is getting at. So you might like to turn back to uh, Jeremiah chapter 7. And in Jeremiah 7, there's that same list of sins, stealing, adultery and idolatry. They all come together. Uh, So in Jeremiah 7 verse 4, Jeremiah says, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? So the people of Jeremiah's day were stealing Oppressing the poor and the disadvantaged, committing adultery, worshipping other gods. And they thought, well, as long as we show up at the temple, it'll be okay. As long as we show up at the temple, we'll be safe to, to pursue whatever life we want, whatever style of life we want. We don't have to worry about turning away from that and turning towards God because as long as we kind of have the temple, uh, it'll, be, it'll be good. As long as we have the law, as long as we know what the law says... As long as we know God, we know who God is. As long as we keep hearing what God wants us to te- wants to teach us, it'll be okay. 
You see, the problem of Old Testament Israel was not that they thought that if they were really, really good, then God would be happy with them. The problem of Old Testament Israel was that God's people thought as long as they claimed an allegiance to God, they could live however they wanted. The problem of Old Testament Israel was that they vigorously and diligently did all their religious exercises. They went to the temple, they offered the sacrifices. But then they were completely indifferent to how they lived. They oppressed the poor, they worshipped idols, they were sexually immoral. And what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 2 is highlighting that the ancient problem of Israel is alive and well in the first century. And actually, the problem of ancient Israel is alive and well in our age as well. So there are plenty of people who call themselves Christians and claim the forgiveness of God, but then, like in Jeremiah 7, go and are completely indifferent in the way that they live their lives. So a friend of mine was invited uh, to a supposedly Christian engagement party uh, and he told me that there was more alcohol there than at any other engagement he'd ever been to. Uh, And he's not even someone who regularly goes to church. Terrible. And he was telling that story at the pub in front of a whole lot of people who weren't Christians. Paul says, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Maybe that's where you're at. Uh, so you might say, at one level, I'm following Jesus, I know Jesus, but then that's what you do on the weekend. You spend the weekends getting, uh, getting smashed uh, or just, you know, just getting a little bit drunk. Or you might say, I know Jesus, but then the, the way that you run your business or the, way that you, the work that you do for your employer is totally dodgy. Or you might say, I know Jesus, but then you oppress the poor and the disadvantaged. To you, they're the scum of the earth, rather than people made in God's image. Or you might say, I know Jesus, but then you spend your life pursuing everything else but Jesus. You're living for yourself, and all your decisions reflect that. They're for your own benefit, for your own desires, according to your own whims. If that describes you, then please hear this in the context of what Paul is saying. Please hear this in the context of what Paul is saying about the mercy of God. That is, God's mercy and kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Do you see? God's not pointing this out to to us so that we can go, oh, man, there's no coming back. God's pointing this out to us Because we can come back. Do you see? God's mercy and kindness is is intended to lead us to repentance. God stands with his arms open wide to you and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The problem that Paul is identifying is not that there's no coming back, not that we can't turn to God, not that it's too late. That's not the problem. The problem that Paul is identifying is that there is a way back. It's so easy to take. 
and yet people are unwilling to take it. Don't be one of those people, please, who says, I know God, but who doesn't. Positively, repentance involves turning to God to seek after him. Negatively, it involves leaving that life of sin uh, and leaving it, uh, leaving it behind. Finally, Paul says that repentance manifests itself not in simply knowing what the law says, but in actually doing it. But the trick question, I think, for us is, what does it mean here in Romans 2 to do the law? What does Paul mean by that, by doing the law? Well, Paul says in verse 25, uh, and it may not make it any clearer, in fact, Paul says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will, not, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person who is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now that might seem all very cryptic, uh, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, it might seem downright bizarre, in fact. Uh, like, hang on, we were talking about repentance, and now we're talking about circumcision. Uh, that's a bit strange. Uh, but Paul is actually continuing through that. He's continuing his discussion about repentance uh, and, uh, and about what it means to know the law. And what he wants to explain, he wants to explain here what doing the law is really about. And he achieves that by focusing on that one, one of the things that the law required, which was circumcision. It was a really key issue. It's important to understand that, that the reason he's focusing on that is because it was a key issue for the Jews uh, of Paul's day. Although it might seem odd to us, circumcision was a sign given to Abraham uh, as a reminder of God's promise that through a descendant of Abraham, God would fix the world. The world was plunged into sin by Adam and Eve, and way, way back in history past, not long after that, God enacted a plan of rescue through Abraham, and he said that through one of Abraham's descendants, God would fix the world. That's why the sign was circumcision, because it was about a descendant of Abraham who would, through whom God would put the world right. Uh, and insofar as people throughout history have put their trust in God and his promise, uh, in that descendant who was to come, insofar as people put their trust in that promise, they would be swept up in what God was doing. The promise that was encapsulated in circumcision was fulfilled in Jesus. The Son of God who entered our world as Abraham's descendant, lived as one of us, died in our place and conquered death, in his resurrection from the dead. Unfortunately, by the days of Jesus, the sign of circumcision was woefully misunderstood. Uh, instead of being a sign pointing to Jesus and to God's promise, it had become a kind of a badge of who was in and who was out of God's people. It had become a kind of a badge, a marker 
of who was saved and who wasn't. So all you needed to be saved was be among the community of people who were circumcised. Uh, and if you were outside of that, it was too bad. But Paul says that's not what it was about. It was about believing in the promise that was, was symbolised by that. Paul says that the real people of God are not those who are externally linked with God through some kind of physical operation like circumcision. No, the real people of God are those who have taken hold of, by humble repentance and faith, the promise of God in Jesus. And Paul describes those people as having circumcised hearts. That is, they believe in their heart what God had promised. That through a descendant of Abraham, God would fix the world. Through Jesus, God would fix the world. They believe, they've appropriated in their heart what God signified in, in the act of circumcision. That's what matters. Not the outward act, but the inward reality, the trust in Jesus. What Paul is saying is, that the heart of keeping the law, paradoxically, the heart of keeping the law is humbly and repentantly believing the gospel. True repentance is not simply about turning from sin to God, that's part of it. It's about turning from sin and anchoring our hope in Jesus Christ, in the person and the work of Jesus. It's not enough to be part of a church. God wants us to believe what the church has believed throughout all the ages. That is, that Jesus Christ is our only hope. It's not enough to carry a Bible under your arm wherever you go. Or to have it on your bedside table. No, God wants us to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. That he is our only hope. It's not enough to wear a cross around our neck. We need to take up our cross, die to ourselves and follow Jesus. It's not enough to see our sin and to identify it and acknowledge it. We need to take up the offer of forgiveness which God gives us in Jesus Christ. The other side of true repentance, in other words, is faith in Jesus. Or as the old Christians uh, used to say, true faith is penitent faith and true repentance is believing repentance. They're two sides of the same coin. Faith in Jesus and repentance turning away from sin. True repentance is not just turning away from sin but trusting in forgiveness, in the forgiveness and righteousness that comes from Christ. And true faith is not just knowing Jesus but turning away from everything and taking hold of him with our whole selves. God is a merciful God, and his mercy and kindness has a purpose, which is to lead you to repentance. And so the question is, I think, has his mercy done that? Has his mercy led you to repentance? Or are you still pointing the finger at everyone else, trying to hide your own sin? Has his mercy led you to repentance? Or are you seeking uh, him, uh, or are you seeking him and the life in Christ that comes from his hand? 
uh, or are you hanging on to sin and trusting in the Bible on your shelf? Has his mercy led you to repentance? Have you trusted yourself to Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen? Or are you despising the sacrifice of Jesus by putting your hope in yourself? Has his mercy led you to repentance? His mercy is there for that purpose. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a God rich in mercy, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You do not always chide and your anger does not remain forever. But you call out to those who've turned away from you and stand with your arms open wide to receive us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, many of us have received your mercy and we are so thankful that we don't need to hide away, but we can be open with you and know that you're a forgiving God. But Lord, for those of us who, who haven't done that, for those who, who haven't turned away from our sin and rejection of you and, and turned and put our trust in Christ, Lord, we pray that you'd work in the hearts of those people. Help them to see the, the pain and the, and the cost of sin and to see the great riches in Jesus Christ. Help them to see how easy it is to turn to Jesus, how wonderful it is. Help them to know your love through him, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.